As we prepare to read God's holy, inerrant, infallible word, let us pray and ask God to breathe out his spirit on us and illumine this, his holy word. Let's pray together. Holy and loving God, your word became flesh and dwelt among us. Through him who was the image of the invisible God, you have been revealed to us that we might know your goodness and be led in your truth. As we read and meditate on your written word this day, help us to not simply see stagnant words on a page, but help us to find you in all of your power and might and to be transformed in your presence. According to your dear son, Jesus Christ, for we pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we have already stated, this is the first Sunday of the Advent season, the season leading up to Christmas. And you can see in your bulletin that Advent means coming. So we know that this is a season in which we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ into the world, the first coming or appearing of God in the flesh. But even as we look back and celebrate the birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary, we shouldn't miss that Advent is also the season in which we prepare and look ahead to the second Advent of Christ, his coming again in accordance with his promises in the gospel. The Apostle Paul, in writing to Titus, who is establishing the church in Crete, reminds Titus of both of these truths, that Christ Jesus has come and that he is coming again. Paul tells Titus in verse 11 of chapter 2 that the grace of God has appeared. And he makes clear in these verses that he is referring to God taking on flesh, becoming fully human in Jesus Christ. Then in verse 13, Paul says that we are awaiting the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is the second coming of Christ when he will come in the fullness of his glory. So there is an appearing of grace and there is an appearing of glory. And we live in between these two appearings, these two points in salvific history. 
And Paul wants us to see here that we are to live in light of the first appearing and we are to live in expectation of the second appearing. Or we might think of it in this way. We are to live in response to and in the power of the first appearing and we are to live in aim of the second appearing. So how we live in the present age, as Paul puts it, is shaped entirely by these two points in history, one in history past and one in history future. And Paul lays out here in just four verses what our living is to look like. And since it is the Advent season, and since it is a season of preparation, preparing to properly celebrate the birth of Jesus and preparing to receive Jesus when he comes again in glory, Titus 2 makes for a pretty good place to start our Advent journey. And as we begin, we should note the posture that we are to take in our living in between these two appearings. It is a posture of waiting. It is a posture of waiting. The word waiting is at the very heart of this passage in verse 13. Very literally, there are about 30 words before it and about 30 words after it. Jesus Christ has come bringing salvation and we are now awaiting his return in fulfillment of the promises of the gospel. And our waiting is to be marked by two specific characteristics according to Titus 2. We are to wait in holiness, and we are to wait in hope. We are to wait in holiness, and we are to wait in hope. We're going to push into these two characteristics of our waiting in Titus 2 this morning in order to draw out what it means for us to wait in holiness and to wait in hope. So first, we are to wait in holiness. As Paul states here in Titus 2, verse 11, the first appearing of God was of grace. It was of grace because God gave himself freely to us in Jesus Christ, not because we earned it, not because we deserved it, but solely based on his goodness and love toward us. Even while we were his enemies, he gave us the gift of his beloved son who gave up his throne in heaven to come and to dwell among us. In Jesus Christ, God became fully human that he might live a life of perfect obedience, upholding the covenant of works God made with Adam in all humanity. It's the covenant which Adam broke by disobeying God. And in breaking it, plunged the whole creation into sin and death. But just as one man brought sin and death into the world, as Paul says in Romans 5, Jesus Christ came that through one man the free gift of justification might be given to all who believe. So Paul states in verse 14, Christ Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us. Jesus offered up his perfect life as a sacrifice, as a ransom for our sins. He paid the penalty of our sins, suffering a horrific death on the cross that we might be redeemed from the curse of our sins. 
So in his atoning death, we can find forgiveness of sins and peace with God. But we also know that Jesus rose again from the dead, overcoming the grave that we might have newness of life. And the Apostle Paul had all of this in his mind when he wrote this statement that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. He's not thinking merely of the birth of Jesus. He is also thinking of his perfect life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection. For it is the entirety of Jesus' life that accomplished salvation for us and extended God's grace to us. We should remember then that the baby who is placed in the manger on Christmas Day has been born in the shadow of the cross. He was born to die that we might live. And Paul tells us what this means for our living. So what does Paul say here? He says that the life of Jesus, his first appearing, has trained us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Certainly, in his perfect life, Jesus has shown us how we are to live. He's demonstrated for us what life is supposed to look like, a life lived in obedience to God, a life lived in relationship with God. But Jesus did not only show us what true life looks like, To those of us who place faith in him, he sends his spirit to enable us to live in this way. It is a life freed from sin and its power. It's a life freed to live to God's glory. His death on a cross was not merely meant to provide forgiveness of sins that we can continue to live in sin. No, it is intended that we might be freed from the power of sin, that we might be enabled by God's spirit in us to live holy lives. We've been saved by God's grace, but grace is also at work sanctifying us. This is what Paul means when he says that God's grace is training us. It's a work. It is at work in those of us who believe, both in negative and positive ways. So from a negative perspective, God's grace is at work teaching and enabling us to say no, to say no to ungodliness, to say no to worldly passions. Now, I don't know about all of you, but my experiences of learning to say no have not typically been a painless process. I've never met anyone who said, I really enjoyed going on that diet and giving up all the delicious foods that I was eating. Or I am, I'm really enjoying giving up sleep to go to the gym to do a grueling workout first thing in the morning, at least not initially. But this is what Paul is pointing to. He's speaking here of being disciplined, of putting to death our sins, being retrained away from the desires of our fallen disposition having to say no to those desires for things and pleasures and values derived from this present worldly system is not easy. But these things are hostile to God. 
They deny him as Lord over our lives. They are violations of his law. They lead us away from his life-giving, joy-producing care. And so the grace of God trains us to do away with them. Just like the person determined to live a physically healthy life recognizes and does away with eating junk food and being sedentary, we too have to unlearn the things of the flesh that we once found great delight in. We have to take off the old sinful man in order to put on Christ in his righteousness. The positive aspect of God's grace at work in our lives is living self-controlled upright and godly lives. It's living a life that is able to discern between virtue and vice and choosing to live in accordance with the boundaries God has set for us. It's living a life that cannot be condemned before men. It's living a life that is pleasing to God. And there is ultimately far more joy, far more satisfaction, far more purpose found in this way of life than giving into our fleshly desires. But we have to learn to say no to all that is hostile to God in order to say yes to that which is good and pleasing to him. And this is how we are called to live in the here and now between the two appearings. It is a holy life, a life that gives glory to God as we live in his light and demonstrate his character in our lives. Paul insists on this. He swings back and, in a way, repeats himself in verse 14 when he tells us that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He's telling us that the self-giving of Jesus Christ has acted to purchase us out of bondage to sin and condemnation. We've been cleansed from our sin by the precious blood of Jesus Christ and claimed as his own possession. And this works to produce in those who believe a desire to do what is good and right. Notice here that Paul isn't presenting this as an optional activity or as a virtuous ideal for believers. He is presenting it as the inevitable outworking of God's grace through the saving death and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the norm. This is the standard. So you might hear in these verses an echo of the apostle Peter who wrote, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the ethic for Christian living that is repeated again and again in varying ways throughout the New Testament. It's a horrible mistake then to believe that in placing faith in Jesus Christ, we can be utterly unconcerned with our personal piety because we've already been forgiven of our sins. The grace of God in Jesus Christ does not promote 
passivity, nor does it give license for one to do as he or she wishes. What Scripture tells us is the one who has truly put faith in Jesus Christ, that that person seeks to lay hold of this grace by which he or she has been laid hold of. And God's grace remains operational in the lives of believers, producing in them a zeal to love and serve God, sanctifying them, making them holy as God is holy. So as we await the return of Jesus Christ, we are to wait in holiness. Second, we are to wait in hope. We are to wait in hope. Paul says in verse 13 that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if we are to wait in hope, then we need to know what we are hoping for. We need to know the content, the substance of our hope. And when we read through Scripture, we know that there are many dimensions of Christian hope. We hope in the promise that when Christ comes again, that God's kingdom will be fully established. And the appearing of Christ is the sign that the old age has come to an end and a new age has begun. It is an age in which the perfect peace of God will reign. And this is why peace is one of the themes of the Christmas season. And God's peace is not simply an absence of war, although there will be no more war, as the prophet Isaiah gives witness to. He tells us that nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But in a fuller sense, peace refers to the perfect harmony that will exist in God's kingdom. Isaiah also tells us about peace in this sense. He writes, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, it's almost difficult to imagine that there will be a time when war and violence will cease. And it's even more difficult to imagine this perfect harmony that will exist in God's kingdom when All we have known is a fallen creation. This is why the Apostle Paul reminds us that no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Nevertheless, God's word presents us with this promise and gives us a glimpse of it. And even more difficult to imagine is a time when death shall be no more. Neither shall there be pain or illness. But this is exactly the promises we have in Scripture. We see in the revelation of Jesus Christ given to the Apostle John, for instance, John tells us that he saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. 
And he continues, and I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Everything, everything will be made new. All of creation will be restored as God intended it to be. And we who have placed faith in Jesus will receive immortal bodies like his, which are not susceptible to disease or decay, which will never grow old or die, which cannot sin. The Apostle Paul tells us in his first letter to the church in Corinth, what is sown perishable, what is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. In this way, we will be made like Jesus and will share in his glory. This is a promise for those who believe. All the effects of the fall will be undone. The curse of sin, the sting of death, destroyed finally and fully. What a glorious hope to know that sin and death will one day be passed. And so our salvation will be fully complete. Our justification will reach its end, our glorification. Christ died on Calvary's cross, not only that we might be forgiven of sin, but in order that we might be made like him. As the Apostle John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he, meaning Jesus Christ, appears, we shall be like him. So we have received the grace of God in the here and now, we have been forgiven of our sin. We've been set peace, set at peace with God, adopted into his family as his beloved children. And we are being sanctified, made holy by God's grace as we wait. But there is still more, much more to come. Our sanctification will reach its completion when we are made perfect in holiness. And this is not just some wishful vision for the future. It's not just some dream that's based solely on our human desire of what we want to happen, like John Lennon's vision for humanity and creation in his song, Imagine. We aren't simply trying to imagine that there is no heaven or hell and everyone is one. Our hope is actually based on a true reality already here and still yet to come. Christian hope, as a great theologian John Lee said, is built on convictions about God's acts in creation and in redemption. Our hope is founded on what God has done and what God has promised to do. And we know that God is always faithful to his promises, which means our hope is sure and certain. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing fickle about the future for one who has placed faith in Jesus Christ. This is why Paul calls it a blessed 
hope. It isn't a barren hope as is every dream and vision of man-made utopias. They rest in the mind of man. They assume the goodness of man. And they will all inevitably fail because of humankind's fallen nature. But the Christian hope rests firmly in God and in his unchanging nature and in his steadfast love and faithfulness. And even as we have this sure hope of everything being made new, of there being peace, of there being no more sin and death, of being utterly transformed, our biggest hope, our biggest hope is that of being in the presence of Jesus Christ himself. This is what John sees and records in Revelation 21, that the dwelling place of God is with man. It's what Jesus assures his disciples of, that he goes to prepare a place for them and that he will come again and will take them to himself, that where he is, they may be also. We were created for this, that we might be able to enjoy relationship with God. This is why he deals with our sins and sets us at peace with himself. This is why he will raise us to everlasting life and dwell with us in his eternal kingdom. And so this is who Jesus Christ is coming for. He is coming for all those who long to be in his presence. He's coming for all of those who are waiting in eager expectation for him. Not just for his benefits, but for him. He's coming for those who find him to be precious. This is what Peter says in his first letter. If you have an ESV Bible, 1 Peter 2.7 is translated, so the honor is for you who believe. Other translations translate the Greek in this way. To you then who believe, he is precious. Charles Spurgeon in a sermon said this about 1 Peter 2.7. Here we have no far-fetched statement. It belongs to everyday life. Those now present who believe can verify it on the spot. As believers, they can tell us whether the Lord Jesus is precious to them or not. We are now about to con- we are now not about to consider an abstruse doctrine or lose ourselves in a profound mystery of faith, but we have before us an assertion which even a babe in Christ may put to the test. Yes, you who but last week confessed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can tell in your own souls whether he is precious to you or not. If you can personally verify this sentence, it says a great deal for yourself. You need never raise the question as to whether you have faith, the faith of God's elect, and are true believers in Jesus. For if Jesus is precious to you, that question is answered once for all by this statement, which covers the whole ground. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. So how about you? Do you only desire heaven because it's better than the alternative? 
Or do you only desire heaven for the benefits of being freed from illness or death or being able to see loved ones who have passed on to glory? And it isn't that these two desires are wrong, a desire to avoid everlasting misery of hell and a desire for the many benefits of heaven aren't wrong, but they are very incomplete. What we should be hoping for is Jesus himself to be finally and fully in the presence of the one who bids us to come and to find our rest in him, to find our peace in him, to find our joy in him. He is our hope. The Apostle Paul recognizes his potential impending death when he writes to the Philippians. And he says this, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul wants nothing more than to be with Christ where he is. The reality is not all desire to be with Christ, though. Many desire to go their own way and do their own thing. They want to live for themselves and for their own glory. And as much as those who find Christ Jesus to be precious and who await his coming again with eager expectation, those who hate him will not view his return with such excitement. To one, his return will bring everlasting joy and peace. To the other, it will bring everlasting damnation. And they are hoping against hope that Jesus isn't coming again. The stark reality is, though, that when Jesus does come again, he is coming to judge the living and the dead. John also testifies to this in the revelation of Jesus Christ given to him, Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Those who reject Jesus Christ, who refuse to bow before his lordship and submit to him, who reject his sacrifice for sin, who live in unrepentant sin, they will not be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And they will be judged based on their own righteousness. Brothers and sisters, none of us want to be judged based on our own works. So we are not to live in between the two appearings as though Jesus Christ were not coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. This is why scripture warns us that he will come like a thief in the night. We must be ever prepared. We must stay awake spiritually. We must remain sober-minded and alert. And living lives that are spiritually awake and alert is living in such a way as to allow our hope to give us direction by helping to aim our lives toward a particular end our future should as one biblical scholar put it permeate our daily consciousness expectations and decisions in other words we should be living in the reality of the promises we have in christ we should then be seeking 
to be at peace and harmony with God and one another. We should be living in the joy of our salvation regardless of our present circumstance. We should be seeking to live in the presence of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. We should be seeking to put away sin from our lives. These are the realities to come, but they are able to be enjoyed and laid hold of in part right now by God's grace. And this is what waiting in holiness and waiting in hope looks like. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Philippians that he presses on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So we are to wait in holiness. We are to wait in hope. And since Advent is a season in which we are reminded that Jesus Christ has come and that he is coming again, it's a good opportunity for us to practice waiting well. To rehearse in our lives the realities that the birth of Jesus Christ has ushered in and to strive after the realities that his coming again in glory will establish for all of eternity. And brothers and sisters, let us take full advantage of this time that God has given us then. Placing our faith firmly in Christ and living in response to God's grace and the power he has supplied. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, even in the darkness of this world, shine the light of the brightness of your love and grace on us that we might have clarity as to your will, that we might have a vision of what you call us to and what you have for us that we might be enabled to live to the praise of your glory. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Nicene Creed. Believer, in whom do you believe? 